to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11 this morning, and we will read uh, uh, several passages in the Gospel of Mark, giving an overview of this chapter. And, uh, so I ask that you attend to the Word of God, beginning in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. And then if you look down at verse 11, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then over to the conclusion, verses 27 through 33. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and, he was, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. The Gospel of Mark chapter 11 elaborates on the theme going on from chapter 10, which we looked at last week. You might remember in chapter 10 we saw that the new covenant Christian gospel supersedes. It goes beyond, takes the place of, uh, enlarges the old covenant limitations of the law by perfecting the theological necessity for covenantal mediation. Uh, simply put, what Moses could not do, Jesus can do. And we go on in chapter 11, and that is elaborated in becoming more specific. The new covenant Christian gospel prepares for the new temple worship of God through the covenantal mediation of Jesus Christ. Now please listen to me this morning. I, I wish I could shout this from the rooftops. I wish I could uh, just uh, burn it into your memory. For the message of the gospel, the theological importance of the new temple worship by the new covenant, replacing the old covenant temple and worship, cannot be overstated. And this is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. I was listening this past week to a, a noted New Testament scholar, um, and in this conversation that he was giving by interview, he was talking about he believes that the Western church from the time of the Reformation has missed the real meaning of the new heavens and the new earth. And all of his conversation, at least in this limited interview, and I don't know, I haven't read his, his book that he referenced on it, but in this conversation, all of his um, focus on new heavens and new earth was cosmological. It was 
about the last things, eschatological. It's going to come about that God will restore and, and uh, perfect and purify the old creation with a new, a new heavens and a new earth. And, and I don't disagree with that mystery. That certainly is something Scripture talks about. But here's what is missed. And that is that the new heavens and the new earth by the new covenant and the new covenant temple and worship of God is first theological before it is cosmological. It is first heaven-referenced and oriented before it is earthly finalized. And that's missed. And that's why I say to you, it cannot be overstated. The importance of the new temple worship of God by the new covenant as it is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus came preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is the source of the gospel. The gospel's beginning in the source of the person of the work in Jesus Christ of the new covenant in his blood, which we'll celebrate this morning. So, with chapter 11 here in Mark, you'll see that Mark narrows the scope to Jesus entering earthly Jerusalem for his final days of public ministry, moving toward the accomplishment of his heavenly ministry. Again, take note of that. Jesus entering earthly Jerusalem for the final days of his public ministry, moving toward the accomplishment of what? His heavenly ministry. The challenge to understanding Jesus' words and actions here in Mark chapter 11 is aided by the interpretive observation that's given to us in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8 and uh, section 7. I have it printed out for you. Listen. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, his divine and his human. By each nature, his divine and his human, doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, with two natures, divine and human, the one and only God-man, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature, the divine or the human, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature, but not with confusion. And so, Concerning Jesus' words and actions here in Mark chapter 11, this interpretive rule applies to Jesus sending two disciples to receive a donkey's foal. There are those who speculate and say, oh, uh, Jesus must have made arrangements with the owners before and he didn't tell his disciples, so he's sending them in there with a prearrangement with these people. Or there are others who say, well, well, no, Jesus is speaking here in terms of the Holy Spirit's preparation. And when he says that it is the Lord who needs him, that authorizes, and these believers who have been prepared providentially by God will release the foal and say, take him for the Lord's service. So here we have Jesus speaking in terms of his earthly mission, but being directed by the Holy Spirit to the purpose of what God is doing. And then perhaps even more confusing is Jesus cursing the fig bush for being fruitless. There's a lot of speculation and a lot of confusion over Jesus in his human nature, seeing that fig uh, bush all filled with leaves with a promise of fruit. And when he comes up closer to it in his human nature because he was hungry and there's no fruit on it, then he curses it. There are those who say uh, that must have just been a petulant act. Jesus was using his uh, divine authority because when he cursed that um, uh, fig bush, there was supernatural power greater than Roundup because the next morning... 
Peter saw it dead from the roots. And so there, there are those who say that, you know, Jesus acted in this way because of his human nature. He was hungry and he got angry because it didn't have any fruit on it. But Jesus goes on to explain what this was about. He was acting in his divine nature in a symbolic, uh, if you will, object lesson regarding the biblical symbolism of the fruitless tree, the fruitless fig bush, the fruitless vine. I am the vine, you are the branches, my father's the vine dresser, those branches that don't bear fruit. The olive tree that's an olive tree that is um, having other branches um, grafted into it that Paul talks about in terms of the Old Covenant, the true believers and people of God as the olive branch, not the particular blood descendants, but the true people of God. And he says, be humble, therefore, those of you who are of Gentile origin, that you are grafted into that olive tree. But if you don't bear fruit, you'll be cut out. And so this is a repetitive motif that we find very clearly established in Scripture. And so Jesus is acting according to his divine and human natures uh, in terms of his one person and purpose as we have it here in the Gospel of Mark. So in chapter 11, the new covenant Christian gospel prepares for the new temple worship of God through the covenantal mediation of Jesus Christ. Covenantal mediation is necessary. What the old covenant could not do, what Moses could not do, Jesus can do because he is the covenantal mediator accepted and approved by God. So I want you to note as we go through the, the summary uh, of chapter 11, I'm, I'm wanting to finish out Mark, so I'm giving you summaries of these chapters uh, I wish I had time to continue the full exposition. I, I found it so rewarding uh, through the, the um, I guess it's been over a year now that we've been in the Gospel of Mark. But I want you to note that as I've given you the summary uh, of this chapter, there are questions uh, that are intended to move you to consider what is here in the Gospel of Mark and where the definite answers are found in Scripture. And so as I bring up these questions, I'm hoping that you will consider them and that you will search the scriptures to see if these things are so, that you'll find uh, references in terms of the Old Testament scriptures in preparation, but then you will find elaboration in terms of the New Testament epistles and the, the writers of the New Testament uh, epistles elaborating on the very things that Jesus says here. And what is being demonstrated to us in terms of how the New Covenant Christian gospel prepares for the new temple worship of God through the covenantal mediation of Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter Mark, uh, in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11, here in the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice that Jesus commissioned, and that, that is an official term, he commissioned, he sent two of his disciples to prepare for his triumphal entry into earthly Jerusalem to publicly confirm his messianic identity. He's becoming more and more public as we come now to the end of his public ministry entering into Jerusalem. To publicly confirm his messianic identity by a parody of worldly pomp. We really shouldn't miss this. I know we call this the triumphal entry of Jesus, but you ought to see and recognize it is a, it is a, a parody. 
Jesus isn't riding on a great white horse in a, in a, a warrior's regalia, uh, bringing his uh, enemies subdued behind him in terms of, of the ancient vil- uh, military victory parades that were accustomed uh, at the time. Jesus is riding on not a donkey, but the foal of a donkey, the colt of a donkey, a, a juvenile animal, not full-grown. It's very likely Jesus had to hold his legs up to keep them from uh, dragging the ground. It it was a parody. I don't want to say it was a mockery, but it was not. It was the opposite of worldly pomp. Uh, There is reference to this being uh, an animal um, upon which no human has sat. It it makes reference to its special uh, use in that way from the Old Testament. And again, I wish I had time to, to draw all those connections with you. But what you need to really understand is that with the people uh, strewing their clothes and cutting down branches and uh, declaring, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, acknowledging and and, uh, referencing from Psalm 118, Jesus is king. And later on, actually, uh, I think coming next week in chapter 12, Jesus will make reference to Psalm 118 about being the chief cornerstone, the capstone. But in, in human terms, this is a parody of earthly pomp as Jesus goes into earthly Jerusalem. So here's a question. How does Jesus sending two disciples? Now, I just put this in there because there is some speculation about who Jesus sent. They're not named. But do you know who the last two named disciples were for us back in chapter 10? Remember, James and John came to Jesus privately. Another gospel synoptic says their mother came with them. And they were wanting special treatment and special place to sit on his right hand and his left hand. And Jesus addressed them. And, of course, the other apostles then realized what they were doing. And and they had hurt, hurt feelings. Things turned sour between them. And Jesus gave them a lesson again about humility and about service. And about putting the Lord first and others in your care and service for them before yourself. And Jesus gave them this lesson again. And now Jesus sends two of his disciples. Maybe it was James and John. But what I want you to consider is that going to fetch this donkey and her colt was a fairly humiliating thing. Going going to get one of the barn animals. Going to get one of the beast of burdens. Going to get one of the humble animals. And having to bring it back to Jesus. Having to ask permission. And saying, this is on the Lord's authority that we're doing this. So I think that's worth considering. But what I want you to most importantly consider is that the borrowing of this donkey's foal for a publicly humiliating parade was preview of Jesus' messianic purpose in Jerusalem. Because Jesus didn't come in worldly triumph and power into Jerusalem. He came as servant to give his life a ransom. And so this is poignantly portrayed to us in Jesus uh, riding this foal, this colt, into Jerusalem, having to probably pick his feet up riding on a little pony animal. And then Jesus sliding off of that animal, crumpling into the dirt, into the dust, throwing the dust up in the air, and going into a convulsion of wailing against the judgment that was coming to Jerusalem. 
Again, another synoptic gives us that record, and it's really shocking. It's unnerving. The the staccato fashion in which it's written in broken language to indicate Jesus' broken sobs and wailing, it would probably have embarrassed us all. That's why I'm saying we need to sort of reorient ourselves to Jesus entering earthly Jerusalem and what it is he is demonstrating to us. That brings us then to verses 12 through 14 here in Mark's gospel. Jesus cursed a fruitless fig bush on the way into Jerusalem, showing his divine judgmental authority and power. This is what I was saying earlier about understanding uh, the two natures, the human and the divine, and the one person of the Lord Jesus. Jesus didn't act in a petulant way because he was hungry and the fig bush had no figs on it. He acted in a symbolic way. So how does Jesus cursing a fruitless fig bush demonstrate by symbolism his mediating divine authority and power for the new covenant gospel to purge and perfect the covenantal worship of God. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem and into the temple. He's going to further demonstrate that to us. But here in his action in terms of this fruitless fig bush, Jesus is giving a preview. Jesus is giving a symbol that through the new covenant gospel... He is going to purge and perfect the covenantal worship of God because He is the covenantal mediator who has the authority and the power to do that. You might ask yourself, did the old covenant worship need to be purged and perfected? According to everywhere in Scripture, it did. And Jesus' actions in the next section, verses 15 through 19, demonstrate that in His cleansing of the temple. Jesus cleansed the earthly temple in Jerusalem as a prophetic sign and preview preparing for replacing the old covenant earthly temple and worship with the new covenant heavenly temple and worship. Remember I said to you in introduction, that cannot be overstated. People everywhere in this country and around this globe in this generation are stumbling in the dark over missing this essential truth regarding the new covenant, the replacement of old covenant temple and worship on earth with the new covenant temple and worship of the new heavens and the new earth through the mediation of Jesus who is greater than Moses. So how does Jesus cleansing the earthly temple give an object lesson about his mediating the new covenant for affecting the transcendent and the imminent power and presence of God through prayer. Because that's where Jesus goes explaining the withered, fruitless fig bush. In verses 20 through 24, Jesus confirmed that his cursing the fruitless fig bush was an act symbolizing his new covenant mediation using covenantal oath. In the language that's recorded for us in the text, Jesus speaks in covenantal oath. Amen. So be it. In terms of his power to speak with authority and with um, purpose to affect God's will. And what does he apply in terms of this covenantal oath to the meaning of the lesson of the fig tree, the fruitless fig tree? He validates unbounded freedom for praying. 
If you'll read Mark chapter 11, you'll see when Peter makes reference to the fig tree drying up and dying the next morning, being gone. Jesus gives a lesson on prayer. And this lesson on prayer is often missed. It's often missed in terms of, oh, if you really believe something sincerely and, and, and uh, devotedly enough, then it will happen. You can make God work for you. You can say to this mountain, this Mount of Olives on which Jesus was standing, be cast into the sea. And if you really believe it, see, you can make God work for you. That is a foolish and often uh, mistaken view of this passage. What Jesus is saying here is that as you see my power to curse the fruitless fig tree, thereby symbolizing to reject the old covenant worship in temple and service, what I'm telling you now is that I am freeing up from the old boundaries the new covenant mediation in terms of your praying to God to do His will. Not your will, God's will. And whatever serves God's will in your life, no mountain or valley can stop. God will bring the mountains down. God will bring the valleys up. That's a beautiful imagery from the prophet Isaiah regarding the coming of the gospel. Make straight the way. Straight talk about Jesus Christ. And here this is what Jesus is saying concerning how we have been given the benefit and the privilege of a greater presence in heaven through the new covenant worship and the temple that's alive with worshipers to God. So how does Jesus applying his cursing the fruitless fig bush confirm his new covenant mediation as divine intercessor interpreting prayers according to the will of God not bound to and beyond earthly location here's what Jesus is freeing up here's what Jesus is changing here's where Jesus is moving from heaven to earth in a greater understanding of what was symbolized of old again I reference the Westminster Confession of Faith neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected, or forsaken when God by his word and providence calleth thereunto. It's a wonderful application that is further elaborated for us in the New Testament writings and application of the very lesson that Jesus is giving here in his cursing the fruitless fig bush and his applying that to how we may have intercession in heaven to serve God and no created obstacle Nothing in heaven, nothing in earth, nothing under the earth can stop the will of God and our submission to seek to honor and to obey Him. Reflect on the end of Romans chapter 8. Remember I told you, you can find Scripture passages that elaborate these very themes in Romans chapter 8, the conclusion. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in heaven above or in the earth beneath or the, the waters under the earth. Nothing human, nothing spiritual, 
Not angels, nor demons. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Jesus is not to be trivialized in the ways that today people say, you know, you put a a, a photograph of what you're praying for. You want a mountain home? You want a yacht? You want a, a, a whatever it is you want? You put that on your refrigerator and you pray and ask God for that? That's idolatry. It's not about moving mountains. That's about the mountain of your selfishness. And the false teachers that are all around us telling us today, that's how we're to pray. That's earthbound. Jesus says, no. Exalted into heaven, I'll make intercession for you that you might know with good conscience that you can serve the will of God. Your life is not meaningless. Oh, there's such a crisis of identity for our young people. My heart yearns for our young people today in this crisis of identity. You've got to figure out where you are. Are you a boy or are you a girl? Are you an animal or are you a bird? Maybe you're a spirit being. Maybe you're a monster. You can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. You're a fool. The world's fools, filled with fools when you listen to that kind of junk. Jesus says when you pray to remove mountains, he's referencing any obstacle that would stand in the way of the will of God. You know what that led him to? Giving up his life a ransom for many. And you know what he said? Take up your cross daily and follow me. He who saves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. What Moses could not do, Jesus does. And he has brought us into a greater realm of wonder and understanding of how we are to serve God and not fear death, not fear what man can do to us, not to fear the grave, but to live in the holy awareness of we have a a heavenly mediator who secures us in earth and heaven in the new covenant. So, in verses 25 through 26, Jesus conditioned this new covenant prayer freedom as an essential act of worship that must be freely offered in response to God's forgiveness. Very interesting that Jesus adds to this lesson on prayer in terms of the liberty and and benefits we have in the new covenant that it's conditioned by forgiveness. He says, if you don't forgive others their trespasses against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Jesus isn't talking about salvation here. He's talking about maturing in Christ. And he's talking about us growing up and manifesting the forgiveness and grace that we have received from God, that we have a disposition that matures to show that to others. Stop being petulant children. Stop being selfish children who want to give your own way. Jesus says, you of your, uh, under your heavenly Father are to forgive others that your prayers might be heard and that you might serve him. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus, that you love one another and show the world that you are my disciples. And so, how does Jesus freeing worship and prayer by the new covenant from the limitations of the earthly temple improve the benefits of his mediating the grace of divine forgiveness as attested by the spirit of adoption? I would encourage you to go to the scriptures to find those answers. Go to the scriptures where John writes about the Holy Spirit attesting to us that we are the children of God. Paul writing about the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, and about the uh, Christ interceding on our behalf. 
These scriptures that are rich for us, that fully reveal more and more to what Jesus is saying here concerning the freedom that we have in worshiping and praying by the new covenant. And appreciate that and love it and be more deeply and deeply uh, imbibed with it to direct you in your life of faith. In verses 27 through 33, Jesus confounded the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the temple. Uh, This is the group known as the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy. They were the leaders. And Jesus confounded them by honoring John the Baptist over his messianic authority to inaugurate. Jesus' messianic authority to inaugurate the new covenant gospel. By what authority do you do these things? He does them as the Son of God. As John preached, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As John anointed him as the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. And so, Jesus confounded the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, by honoring John the Baptist. John the Baptist identifying Jesus as his messianic authority to inaugurate the new covenant, the new covenant gospel, for a new beginning of the kingdom of God in heaven. The opening of Mark's gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the source beginning the gospel who came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. How does Jesus confounding the Sanhedrin by referencing John the baptizer include more than outwitting his false accusers. This isn't a mind game that Jesus is doing here. But rather Jesus captures the Old Testament prophecies for the promised new covenant as they were represented in John the baptizer, the last of the Old Covenant prophets, the Elijah who was to come, who pointed the way of the Messiah. And Jesus saying, he who is least in the kingdom of God has greater privilege than even John the baptizer, the last and greatest of the Old Testament covenants, uh, prophets had. These are the mysteries that are explained to us by the gospel. And by searching out these things from the word of God, seeing in the book of Acts how the apostles preached these things, how they were elaborated in the writings of the epistle literature of the New Testament. Don't take it piecemeal. Take it collectively as it relates to elaborating on who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what He is doing, and how the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Don't be pulled back. Don't be pulled down. But rather, look above where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us according to the will of God. It should not be overlooked that Jesus entered Jerusalem and located himself in the earthly temple for his final days of his messianic mission on earth in order to theologically and visibly show himself to be the chief cornerstone, the capstone, rejected by men, but honored by God, the promise of the new covenant temple and worship of God through the necessary better mediator than Moses of old, and that is Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. That's why we gather in his name, and that's why we observe this sacrament, that we are in a mystery of faith and wonder that the world doesn't see. 
that must be seen by faith. And when you see this bread and when you see this cup of juice or wine, you see more by faith. It's identified for us by the words of institution, what this bread means. It means that we're a part of something greater than ourselves. It means we have received the true bread of life. The ancients ate bread in the wilderness and died. They ate manna from heaven. But it wasn't mixed with faith. We're to receive this bread in faith. Not that it's anything more than faith, but it symbolizes to us that which is greater than the physical. Physical. 